Welcome to the Fourth Space Podcast. In this episode of our new Checking In series, we meet up with Patrick Leitany, Concordia's Public Affairs Advisor, to listen in on his conversations with Concordia researchers. This week, he sits down with Darren Wurschler to discuss a new paper just published in the journal Gamevironments on how he used Minecraft to teach a class on the history and culture of modernity. This presented the researchers with the opportunity to see how the students use the game to achieve their academic goals. Thanks for listening. So Darren, thanks for, thanks for joining. Um, just tell me uh, sort of about how, how, the, how the course developed. Um, I, I, I found it really fun about how the students kind of gradually got interested in it. I have, a, I have two kids myself who love Minecraft. So of course, yeah. I, I have like a natural, I've got like, I've got skin in the game. and um and then yeah and then maybe we if we can just end on on what this means to education um and sort of technology in education learning to play playing to learn that sort of thing all right well so i've been using minecraft in classrooms since 2014 i teach a course called video games and as theory and i've done a number of things with it over the years pre-pandemic I was doing a very different version of the course. It was all hands-on. I had students working in groups with physical emulators in a classroom space. And of course, when lockdown started, I had to reinvent everything in about three days. And so in utter terrified desperation, it occurred to me that I could take the Minecraft version of the class and rather than having students in class sometimes and then working on the server in the way that you would say when you went to like the lab section of your course, I would just put them in Minecraft all the time. I talked to a couple of people about this. I talked to Bart Simon, my research partner. He's currently the director of Milieu, but had been the director of TAG. And he and I started this thing we call the uh, TAG Minecraft block a few years ago in order to create a kind of forum for Minecraft-related research. This is something we've been working on, again, since about 2014. And I said, do you think this will work? And he said it might. So we went to the Concordia Lab for Teaching and Learning and talked to them about it and said, look, if we're going to do this seriously, we'd need some support because we had already in place a team of interdisciplinary researchers. But if we were going to do this, I thought, all right, well, we actually have to track it so that we can get a sense of whether or not it's it's a feasible thing for anybody else to try ever. So we wrote up a proposal and we took it through the research ethics process so that we could study the class and got some money from Little, the Lab for Innovation and Teaching and Learning. And very quickly, we had a research team of about 13 people ready to go, including Bard from sociology, myself in the English department, uh, colleagues in engineering and computer science to do the programming in the background. We had teaching assistants from the ethnography lab. We had teaching assistants from engineering to help design the things that we were interested in doing. Fortunately, we had a postdoc who had been working with us Nicholas Watson, who has just literally completed his dissertation on Minecraft, and uh, Gina Harasti, who is a professional videographer who has done some full-length 
video documentaries about Minecraft and Minecraft players. So we were in a pretty good position to actually do something interesting. And the question was, what? So the idea, and again, this was kind of born out of desperation, was that we would simply put them in the server in a context where their class time was structured by team-based projects and see what happened. So that's what we did. But the question was, how directive should we be around all of this? And the students being students, of course, the ones who signed up for the course, many of them have been playing Minecraft themselves since they were quite small. So they got onto the server a couple of days early. And when I showed up for the first class, they had built essentially a small lecture theater, complete with a screen and a lectern and lights. And sure enough, as the students joined the server and filed on, they slowly made their way into the theater and stood around as though I was going to show up with my little Minecraft avatar and give them a lecture in Minecraft. And the temptation to do this was overwhelming, <laughs> but I didn't. Because the point for us was that what we were interested in was the relationship between the game and some other body of writing. And in the case of this course, we were interested in modernism and modernity. So the, the theory and the history and the culture of the modern. So we put those two things together and it's not, the course is unconventional in that it's not a video game studies course. It's not just about the game and it's not a gamified version of another thing. It's not, you know, do these projects in order to learn about modernity. It's not that either. It's, it's this other thing that sort of sits in the middle in a more uncomfortable space where the two kind of brush up against each other. And the learning comes out of trying to think about those two things simultaneously. So we were waiting to see what was going to happen with the students in the amphitheater. And eventually they figured out that I wasn't going to show up and just start talking. So they were looking around for something to do. And the first night in Minecraft is kind of a horrifying experience. If you've never played it before, monsters come to kill you and you have no tools and no equipment and nowhere to go. So one of the students started teaching an impromptu workshop on how to survive your first night. So he was teaching people who had never played before how to do things like build basic tools and weapons and make a little dirt house so that you could survive the night until the morning. And I thought this was wonderful. And I did some thinking about it and, and found the student after class and said, that was really great. Could you maybe pick up where you left off on Thursday? So I showed up for the next class and they had built this amazing piece of teaching infrastructure where they had essentially built little plots of land for every student in the class with a chest, with all of the materials inside that they would need in order to build themselves a little house, plant some food, build some weapons, and do some basic mining. They basically started teaching the class to each other. Now, this was the first part of what we had sort of hoped would happen if we left them to their own devices with a little bit of guidance in terms of what we were looking for. The projects themselves were really interesting uh, because eventually the groups would decide on what their project for the class was going to be. They'd come and talk to us about it. We'd suggest some refinements and then they would go off and, and do it. But the most successful projects occupied this kind of space in between 
the things that I was just talking about in between learning about the game and learning about a set of readings that are tangentially associated with the game somehow. So I had this one group that being in Montreal decided they were going to try and uh, build a copy of uh, Moise Safdie's Habitat 67. And it's a perfect building for Minecraft because it's very blocky looking. And aesthetically, it's very easy to duplicate that under Minecraft conditions. And this is often the kind of thing that's done with Minecraft. People who are teaching architecture or design find structures that are amenable to the form and send students off to build in it as though they're using some kind of computer-assisted drawing program. Now, when they do that, usually the game is in what's called creative mode, which means that you can use any material in the game whenever you want under whatever conditions, and you don't have to worry about the monsters. The monsters are all turned off. That's not what we do. <laughs> so <laughs> it's important to us that the game remains a game, that while my students were trying to recreate Habitat 67, there were zombies and skeletons and other kinds of horrible things coming out of the wilderness trying to kill them because it leaves the game situated inside the realm of games. It makes them think about the fact that what they are doing requires a certain amount of effort. And it sort of makes it possible to fail too. Like the course wouldn't have worked if students could not have failed at various aspects of what they were doing, that there was a certain amount of risk involved, even to the extent that the software that we were using failed on a regular basis. The, the version of Minecraft that we were using, uh, it was a custom-built version that we had pieced together from various small pieces of software that amateur players and designers have made. People talk about it as modded Minecraft because it's been modified to do a variety of things that the regular game won't. So we had built some mods ourselves and drawn on some other popular ones to create certain kinds of conditions that we wanted to see at work in the game. Now, of course, the hazard there is we're not using AAA enterprise grade software. We're using things that are built, you know, by in some cases, 15 year olds, <laughs> and they're, they're not going to work well with each other. They're going to break. And again, students as consumers aren't really used to those kinds of conditions. They're not used to thinking about things as being provisional or uncertain or shaky. Uh, so that was, that was also important to us to see how they would react to the problems that emerge when you use software like that in the context of a class. Of course, it also presents interesting opportunities because there are things that you can make happen that the mod designers could not possibly have anticipated because they can't imagine necessarily how one mod is going to work well with another one. So to go back to the, the group that I was talking about a minute ago that was working on Habitat 67, the project became really interesting when they started to realize that the methods that had been developed to build that building constructing things in slabs ahead of time and then putting them together don't work in Minecraft at all. You have to build everything block by block. So while you end up with something that looks formally similar to the building, it's built in a completely antithetical way to all of the principles of modern construction that were supposed to make it work in the first place. So that was sort of the first realization that we were looking for, you know, that these two things were not the same and that one was not a simulation of the other. 
So that kind of tension was sort of the first piece of what we were looking for. And then other things interestingly happened along the way. So most lighting in Minecraft is done with torches. So there will be little guttering torches on walls all over every building everywhere that you don't want monsters to appear. But torches aren't very satisfying inside modern architecture. So we had thought about this and we had found a mod that would allow the students to build neon lighting, but it required them to go places that were actually kind of dangerous in the context of the game. There's this dimension that's called the end, which is like a series of islands hanging in this interstellar void somewhere. <laughs> and it's full of horrible, scary monsters, and it's difficult to get to. And there's a dragon that you have to battle if you're going to show up at all, and so on and so forth. So this is where they had to go to find the necessary ingredients in order to make neon lights. And again, it, it, it was a way of keeping a kind of tension between gameplay and the ideas that they were interested in, in terms of architecture and design at odds with each other. Like these things are not the same. And in fact, in many ways, they're kind of radically opposed. So in addition to forcing the students to think about what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, again, there was always the possibility that it wasn't going to work. So that tension worked really well throughout the class, and we had a number of very interesting projects as a result of it. But the final thing that we were looking for came right at the very, very end, where what we were hoping and banking on was, in fact, that the students would start to use the kinds of skills that they were developing inside the game to help them to do their academic work. So they were working in teams. They were doing things collaboratively. They were dividing up responsibilities. And sure enough, uh, they started to do this while working on their papers. And we know this because we connected the game chat to a online communications tool called Discord that Bart and I have been using for three or four years. So everything that got written in the Discord would show up in the Minecraft chat and vice versa. So the students could talk to each other wherever, whenever, regardless of whether they were in the game or not. But they started to do things like workshop papers for each other and help the people in their groups to develop ideas that they had come up with inside the game and suggested examples from what they have done and pointed them to secondary readings and so on and so forth. So that was kind of the icing on the cake was not only did we manage to create a level of engagement that I've never seen even in a physical classroom, but we figured out a way to do it so that the skills that the students developed in gameplay were transferable to their academic work. So as I was saying, the engagement for the first version of this course was kind of incredible. I have pretty, very detailed statistics on this because we were logging all of the time on the server over the course of the term. So of the students that were in the course, in an average course, you might have, what, like 36 hours of contact time a term. I had maybe three or four students who were around 36 hours. At the upper end, there were students that were spending 300 hours on the server. And at that point, Bart and I looked at each other and said, well, maybe this is a little too engaging. Like, where's, the, <laughs> yeah. where's, where's the middle ground? And sure enough, I, I mounted the course again after lockdown 
in uh, this last uh, uh, term, the fall 2021 term. And the numbers were lower because the students actually could leave their houses and they had other responsibilities. So they spent less time in the course, but we still saw the same kinds of things happening in terms of a higher degree of engagement, a willingness to experiment, a willingness to transfer skills from gameplay into thinking about their academic work. And what was interesting to me was after talking to the students during exit surveys and conversations that we had during term, one of the things that started to become obvious was that students who often were sort of in the middle of the class academically were really rising to the occasion. And it was in part because a number of them said something to the effect of, I'm not normally a leader in class, but because I have these gameplay skills, people were looking to me in a way that I've never felt in a classroom context before. And I found that I had something more to contribute. So the excellent students are always excellent. Like that was never kind of in doubt. But what was interesting to me was that we could engage this whole sort of group in the middle that we hadn't been serving as well as we could maybe. What I'm trying to figure out now and the kind of thorny problem is what you do with the students who just sort of check out because you know, invariably some of them just decided this was not for them and went off to do something else. So some good things happened. There are some things that I'm still trying to figure out, but on the whole, I was very, very happy with the way that the course worked and the kinds of experiences that came out of it. I took a group of undergraduates from the first group, in fact, and I made them into an undergraduate research team and paid them as research assistants in the second class. And the project that they came up with for the second class to use uh, was a kind of Minecraft escape room. It's really kind of an amazing thing. We're still iterating it now. But one of the other things that sort of became obvious was that we can use this as a kind of pathway to uh, students thinking about themselves as researchers, whether or not they decide to go to graduate school as a result. But you can take a, a large group of students and give them a, a range of scenarios for what they might like to do, depending on exactly how much work they want to put into it. So at the end of the day, what we have is a kind of package that could be used by educators in a variety of different contexts. I did all of the lectures for this course as podcasts, uh, half hour, half hour recordings with musical interludes and the whole nine yards. One of the things that I did during lockdown was teach myself how to record in a decent way. Oh, good um, well, you know, I, I, it wasn't like I had nothing else to do, but it just sort of became a necessity. So what we would like to do is to be able to make available the lectures and the mods that we made as sort of, you know, specialized assets for teachers who might want to try these kinds of things at whatever level, high school, college, university, and a set of articles about the process itself. And all of this is going to be on the, uh, the tag research block website very, very shortly on the Concordia site for tag. Um, it's already in progress, but you could use these principles and these tools to teach a whole variety of subjects with the game, 
because when we started thinking about it, there's no reason that you couldn't do this, not only with architecture or design or engineering or computer science, but philosophy or history or um, cultural studies, sociology. There are lots and lots of different ways that you could structure this to make it work. So we've had some interest from, um, from Microsoft, from their Minecraft at, uh, ADU division, and we're talking about doing the next version of the class inside Microsoft's Minecraft EDU. So the first article uh, came out of a series of papers that we did last summer and has just appeared on the, the GameVironments website. But there are a number of other things that we want to write about that came out of thinking about these two classes together. So there will be more research and I hope eventually a book to follow it. Fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the allegorical build? So what did you mean by that? What oh, okay. is Sure. Well, the paper that we just published about this is called the allegorical build. And allegory, of course, is like a very, very old um, way of thinking about teaching ideas to people that goes all the way back to classical antiquity. And traditionally in allegory, you use one set of things to think about something else. So Plato's allegory of the cave as a sort of way of thinking about self-awareness and how people come to self-awareness. And the interesting thing about allegory as a form is that it actually requires you to make mistakes. And this is partly why we were drawn to it, because every time you think you understand what the allegory is, it shifts. So you think you've figured out the relationship in our case, say, between Minecraft and the modern, but then you realize, no, 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 that's not right. So it's, it's like the, um, the Habitat 67 example, because uh, you can build something that looks formally like the building, but you can't use the construction methods that were developed in order to build the building. So what's going on is actually something other than what you thought it was at first. And Frederick Jameson, who is one of the most sort of famous contemporary thinkers who has used allegory, says allegory, in fact, is it's a lot like critical thinking itself in that you make an assessment of what you think you're doing, you test it, it turns out to be wrong, you adapt it, that turns out to be wrong, you adapt it. And it, it's a kind of ongoing process and a, a way of thinking about being a student or being an academic, or just like being a person engaging with your culture that I find enormously attractive, because it's not like you get it right once and then it's done. You're engaged in this kind of ongoing process. So this again sort of allows us to take something like this, you know, this game that on the one hand has largely been dismissed by gaming culture as something that's for kids, but on the other hand is still the best-selling video game in history, you know, and selling at a level that it's not just a best-selling video game, it's comparable with other major kinds of cultural technology, like say the Ian Bogost says, you have to make, in order to make sense out of Minecraft, you have to compare it to something like the personal computer. If you're going to sort of think about the degree of, of impact that it's actually having. So by using this allegorical method, we can look at Minecraft in relation to a whole bunch of other things in order to try to teach students not just about subject matter, but about a way of thinking about subject matter. And that, that's really the goal for us is to say, all right, let's 
for a moment, take seriously the idea that you might be researchers or, you know, public intellectuals or just engaged citizens. You know, you're not here to passively consume content. It is emphatically the wrong class for that kind of approach. But again, what was sort of interesting to me was the ways that you could engage students who might not otherwise have been all that interested in the process. By having the lectures pre-recorded, it freed up an enormous amount of time to actually talk to them. So I would have my computer on and whether or not I was in Minecraft, I had my Discord on and all of the time I knew what was going on in the world. So I could talk to the students basically whenever they liked about the projects that they were working on or their questions about the readings or what was going on out in the world and how we were all dealing with it. And, you know, like it, it seemed like a pretty good bet to me during lockdown because the worst case scenario would have been we came out of it actually having a fairly enjoyable experience during a pretty horrible time culturally. But it turned out in the end to be one of the most successful classes that I've ever taught. And that really took me by surprise. Fantastic. Um, so, so the modernism in this, in this case, it, it's not sort of like, it's, I guess the Minecraft approach didn't really uh, depend on having a course in modernism. It could have been, like you said, a course in almost anything, right? Yeah. Just the modernism, like, you know, you're using Minecraft to explain mod or to teach modernism to, to undergrads, but it didn't have to be modernism. It wasn't modernism or Minecraft is not dependent specifically on modernism. It was just a kind of convenient way. Like, was, what was the role, I guess, of modernism in this course? Was it just as, as an example of something okay. to apply Minecraft to? Well, Minecraft is set roughly in the fantasy equivalent of the early modern period. So the technologies in the game are railroad, basic uh, smelting and mining technologies, basic uh, electronics and mechanics, those kinds of things. So there seemed to be a kind of rough analogy that made for a good starting place. But when you actually start thinking about the assumptions that are hard baked into the game, the things that people don't really think about all that much, it starts to get really interesting. So for example, one of the things that is uncomfortable for many Minecraft players is the realization that basically the game is a kind of settler colonialist fantasy. You arrive in this world that when the game starts is pristine to the extent that nothing has been built, but it's all divided up by this giant grid for your convenience. Everything in the world is there for your use. And as you proceed to divide and settle this world, one of the first things that starts to happen is you become aware that there was something else there before you. There are ruins from other civilizations. There are undead monsters who are really unhappy with the fact that you're there, who are coming out to actively try and dissuade you from building the things that you're doing. So again, if you think about it in, in, in that context, it becomes a very useful allegory for thinking about colonization as a process. On the one hand, it's convenient 
to think about Minecraft as something that is there for your amusement or your enjoyment. But the game actively suggests that your presence on other levels is not welcome or, you know, unwanted or an intrusion, you know, or a variety of other things that might lead us back to think about histories of colonialism, histories of genocide, uh, uh, all of those, those kinds of very pressing questions that are, you know, very much at the forefront of contemporary thought. Um, so that's, that's one way that it's sort of useful to think about modernity. And another way is that a lot of the kinds of things that are built into the game as part of the game's mechanics end up pointing to some fairly insightful things about how technology worked in modernity and lighting is from was for me the one that really made me sit up and take notice so one of the the most important books about the history of early urban lighting was written by this american writer named wolfgang Schivelbusch, and he argues that when lights start to appear in uh city of paris in the 17th century they're not really there to illuminate things so much as they are a kind of policing. They're there so that you will be seen by the authorities who are there to monitor you rather than to show you where you are going. And uh, the more lighting spreads through the city, the more it becomes about containing undesirable people, uh, fighting crime, those kinds of things. So for Chivalbush, lighting and policing are inextricable. Now, in Minecraft, of course, the main purpose of lights is to keep monsters from appearing around you. Monsters in Minecraft only appear in the darkness, and they will only appear when the light level drops below a certain point. So you literally have to build a kind of lighting grid out of torches around anything that you build to keep monsters from simultaneously appearing inside your house. And again, it's really interesting to give these two things to students and say, all right, let's think about these two things together. What, you know, what do you, what do you learn when you think about the way that this game is structured and what this article is trying to say to you at the same time? So the two things help you to understand each other. You know, it's not like Chivalbush certainly isn't a video game critic. He's not there to teach you anything about Minecraft. And Minecraft is not designed to teach you, you know, abstruse media theory about the 17th century. But when you look at those two things together, you can see, like for some students, it, it's just like a, the, the recognition is just immediate, right? It, it, it galvanizes the idea. And there are a lot of moments like that in Minecraft. The most interesting moments, though, happen when the students outthought us on some level. So in order to build the kinds of ambitious projects that they wanted to undertake in the game, they needed an enormous amount of raw material. So that either means spending a lot of time in the game mining and processing materials, and we had all kinds of extra mods that required extra steps between the moment that you carve the block out of the world and you actually do something with it. So they would have to build these complex machines to process everything that they mined or cut from a forest or found or whatever. And we, we, we built a kind of, um, we built a kind of safety valve into the game to consume extra resources that we thought 
would do the job for us. Um, if you've ever seen uh, Fritz Lang's classic modernist movie, Metropolis, there's this moment when the workers are chained to this huge, horrible machine that is uh, uh, consuming their labor, it's destroying their lives. And at a certain point, it turns into this huge demonic face, like a, a kind of furnace with its mouth open. Uh, and it's the allegory there is to uh, Moloch, you know, the, this kind of ancient, uh, you know, demonic god that was used as a way of talking about industrial culture in England in, in, in the early in industrial period, that it was this machine that was consuming people's lives and energy. So we just, we built Moloch. We had our designer uh, come up with a structure that looked like Moloch in Metropolis. And we gave one to each team at a certain point. They just appeared overnight and Moloch started making demands of them that they do certain kinds of things. And we thought, all right, so for any team that gets particularly good at, say, mining iron, we can just make Moloch eat all their iron. Right. <laughs> now, again, this, this and, and it's funny because it's a kind of parody of educational technology, like the idea that you can just build this thing that will, you know, make demands of your students and, and uh, uh, that they will somehow learn from engaging with it. And it was very deliberate on our part, because again, this, this isn't gamification. It's something more complicated than that. What I didn't count on was the students figuring out something else. So... Another of the mods that we used was this mod that put magic bees into the game. So there are these bees scattered all over the world that do different kinds of things. And if you put them beside resources, the bees make honey that have more of those resources in it, which you can then purify to get more than you would have otherwise. Now, in most cases, people will have like a beehive or two so that they have a little bit extra of the, the difficult resources to get in the game. But... There was this one team that had, they decided they were going to build this, um, their project for the term was to build an example of uh, this very important piece of Japanese modernist architecture called the capsule tower. Um, and um, in order to do this, they needed an enormous amount of raw material and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And they had been very secretive about it. So I started looking around the map to see what I could find. And over the horizon, suddenly there was this enormous hexagonal structure with this giant tower on top. And the closer I got to it, I could see that every floor had a set of bees on it. And these bees were producing resources at an insane rate. And it was all going into this giant hexagonal factory that they had built underneath to process all of those these resources. So the the most rare resources in the game, things like emeralds, you know, which a given player might have if they're lucky, you know, a few dozen of at any given time. I went and I looked in their storeroom and there's 60,000 emeralds. <laughs> <laughs> and everything was like that. And it, it was, it occurred to me in that moment that they had jumped right over modern production. And what they had built was the functional equivalent of a Bitcoin mine. It was this distributed machine that was producing something out of nothing. You know, and it was purely digital, but it was, it was humbling <laughs> to see that they had, you know, with no instruction about how to do this, built this incredibly complex infrastructure that made everything that they needed in order to not only build their project, but they could have supplied everyone else on 
the server with resources to do theirs. And of course, it affected the way that the server itself ran. It was, it was so big, like the game was having trouble keeping up with, with what they wanted to do. Uh, so it became a kind of ethical problem, right? Like your team gets to complete their project in good time, but the machine that you made to do that is actually, actually actively interfering with other people's ability to do that. And again, it was, it, it took the, the, things that we could talk about in the class onto an entirely different level. Um, so those are the, those are the moments that you cannot plan in advance because they're emergent moments. They're the moments that every teacher prays will happen at least once a class. Uh, and every time we have done a version of this class, we've had a moment like that where something that is just so jaw droppingly odd happens that it changes the complete trajectory of the teaching for the course. So like the, the, the beauty of a game like Minecraft is that it allows those emergent moments to happen. You put things together and if you're lucky, something surprising will come out of it. And every time we've done this, there has been some version of that moment. It's always different because the mods that we're using are different. The, the players are different the assumptions that we're making about what what's going on are different, but it always happens at some point. And for me, that's, you know, that's, that's why I do this job is, is because of those kinds of things are possible. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was great. That was like super interesting. That's really, you know, I, I came away from the paper, you know, with a pretty good understanding of what was, what your goal was, but this kind of, you really explained it very well. So thanks for that. That was really, really interesting. Oh, you're entirely welcome. It's a pleasure. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.4.concordia.ca or find us on social media at CU Fourth Space. We'd love to hear from you. The Fourth Space podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced with Anna Voklebeck. Editing by Chanel Lees Marshall and Maximus Delmar. Social media and web support by Kari Balmstead. And our theme music, courtesy of Supercon.